0: If you have a Bible, or you're going to turn on your Bible, your electronic device, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning, so I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. This is week 2 of our ministry here at Pine Tree, and we made it back, and some of you came back, so we're glad to have week 2, have week 1 under our belts. Uh, Last Sunday morning, uh, we started, I started in Mark chapter 1. I told you for the month of June, we're going to spend time with Jesus. And we're going to study through some of the highlights of the Gospel of Mark. And last week, I looked at Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus invites these fishermen. He says, come, follow me. And they leave everything, and they come, and they follow him. In chapter 2, Jesus invites this tax collector named Levi, and he says, come, follow me. And Levi leaves everything to follow Jesus. And then we we stopped last Sunday morning in Mark chapter 3, In verse 14 and 15 where Jesus calls these 12 apostles or otherwise known as sent ones or missionaries. He calls them and in verse 14, the the purpose of calling them is going to be to send them. But before he sends them, he invites them to come and to be with him. That's what discipleship is all about. That's where discipleship begins is being with Jesus. And so that was part of the invitation to come be with him. But the purpose eventually is going to be so that he can send them. In, in chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, he's going to send them out to preach and to have authority over these demons, over the work of Satan. And so because of this, he's preparing his disciples to eventually send them. All right. So we believe as Christians that God sends. We believe in missions. I've already seen in Pine Tree that that you guys have a heart for missions, and so do we. And we're glad to partner with you on that. I know that since we've been here, we've already had some people, I think, in Ghana. Uh, We've had some people in Korea. We have a group going to Honduras this week. I believe it's this week, and we'll be in prayer for you. So we believe, and you believe, that God sends, and He still does that, like He does for the disciples here, or He's preparing to send them in chapter 3. Here's a little history on a little bit of... American history of world missions, or or the West at least. About 107 years ago, in 1910, um, a group of people, a large group of people, gathered in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was actually June 14th through the 23rd, so we're coming up on almost 107 years ago. This was known as the first ever World's Missionary Conference. Everybody gathered together in Scotland, with well, the main purpose, the main topic of discussing how can we reach the rest of the world for Christ? At the time, about 107 years ago, a majority of the Christians, who, people who claimed to be Christians, lived in the West, in Western European countries, or in, the, in North America, in the United States. A large percentage. We'll, to make it simple, we'll say two-thirds of all the Christians in the world were in the West. So they met to discuss how do we spread the message? Like, how can we take the gospel to Africa, to South America, to India, to China? You know, how can we send people to learn languages and learn cultures with the main purpose of spreading the gospel? So that was the topic of discussion for this conference in 1910. Following the conference, there were many volunteers. People stepped up and said, I want to go. Send me. Send the light, kind of like the song we were just singing. And as the legend goes, missionaries would pack their luggage all their belongings in their coffins. Because back then, they knew that once they left to go somewhere, they were probably never coming home again. I don't think they actually packed in a coffin, but that was just kind of the same. You know, nowadays, at least we have planes and we have Wi-Fi. Even in remote places in Africa, you can probably find Wi-Fi. But back then, I mean, they knew once they left, they were probably never coming home again. But they believed in the call, this invitation that Jesus gives to go to be sent. And we still believe that today. There's places like Missions Resource Network out of Dallas. And they prepare missionaries, train them, get them ready, send them out. And while they're there, they take care of the missionaries. And even when they come home, they continue to care for them. All of this is based around this inspiration that Jesus sends. He makes disciples, invites them to come be with him, and then he sends them out. So in Mark chapter 1, if you have your hand out, In the bulletin insert, this will this will be in there. The highlights in yellow will tell you where to fill in the blank. If you if you don't figure it out on your own, Uh, but in Mark chapter three, he invite he calls his disciples. And what we're going to build to in this lesson this morning is Mark chapter six. And in Mark chapter six, he sends his disciples. This is their first mission trip, so to speak. He's going to send his disciples. So as you see, these are brackets, okay? If you look on the PowerPoint, you see A, and you see A prime. Don't let that confuse you too much. But basically, you have three chapters in between when Jesus calls them and when he sends them out initially. In Mark's gospel, he tells one large story of the good news of Jesus. But mixed in, he has several sub-stories. And this is one of those sub-stories. This is the section where Jesus begins to train His disciples. So from the time He calls them with the purpose of sending them until the time that He actually sends them, what happens in between is a training process. He's preparing them. They're with Him. They're learning to be like Him. Learning what He's passionate about. Learning how He teaches. Learning where to go. Things like that. In the middle of this section, in chapters 4 and 5... We have the words and the deeds of Jesus. Uh, In chapter 4, Jesus teaches. He teaches in parables. He teaches the parable of the sower. He teaches parables about the kingdom of God. So what the disciples are doing is they're with Jesus. They're listening to him teach. They're observing him. They're learning his teaching style. And then he's teaching them privately also. This is a part of this discipleship training. This is a part of learning to be like their master. They're literally sitting at the feet of their rabbi, learning from him. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus calms a storm out on the water. And one of the things that you'll see as you study through Mark is there's a lot of parallels between the Exodus story and the way that Mark tells the story of Jesus. In the Exodus story, God brings the Israelites out of slavery into Egypt and God controls the waters as he parts the Red Sea. Here, Jesus has control over the chaos of the waters... And then in chapter 5, Jesus goes across the lake and he meets a man named Legion in this cemetery. And this man is possessed by many demons. Jesus casts the demons out into the pigs and they run and they drown in the sea. Just like Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea in the story of the Exodus. So Jesus is leading this new Exodus through his ministry with these, the new 12 tribes of Israel with these 12 apostles And then in chapter 5, they see that Jesus has authority over nature, Jesus has authority over disease, and Jesus has compassion. He's going to heal Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler, who's very sick. And on the way, a lady who had been bleeding for 12 years touches the the garment of Jesus' cloak, and she's healed, but he stops, and he wants to know, who touched me? And then she comes, and she tells him her story. And then he blesses her and then he goes on and in the meantime the synagogue ruler's daughter had passed away And he brings her back from the dead So this is a part of the discipleship training now. That's pretty amazing Imagine being a fisherman or a tax collector And then all of a sudden this guy invites you to come follow him and you do and you're on an amazing adventure That's a lot of things to take in in a short amount of time. Who is this guy? Obviously, he's from God with all this power and authority that he has. And he's a great teacher. And that's a part of their training. However, one of the important things that I think Mark wants us to notice is it's not all success stories. It's not all just adventure stories. And look what we did here and look what we did there. There's some hard times as well. And the disciples are right there for the hard times. They observe that also. I grew up in Greenville, Texas. And when I was in 7th grade, we had, uh, we called it the middle school, 7th and 8th grade, and we had a coach named Coach Mull. He was our, uh, he was the head football coach, but he was also my science teacher. So I was in his science class preparing for one of the biggest tests of the year, and Coach Mull had this board that he would keep in his office in the athletic department, and uh, when you would act up, even if you acted up in his class, he'd give you licks, so I really, I, I wanted to impress Coach Mole. I did not want to get licks, okay? So I, we had this test coming up, and I wanted to make the best grade in the class, basically because I didn't want to get a spanking. I don't know if you can still do that, but that was my motivation. So I studied for several weeks for this test, uh, and the time came to take it. The night before, my dad reviewed me, and he said, man, you got this down. You're going to make a 100 on this test. I showed up. We got one of these Scantrons like you see on the PowerPoint. Uh, filled it out. And I felt like I knew everything. There was maybe a couple questions that I wasn't sure if I got right. But for the most part, I was like, I got a high A on this and probably the highest grade in the class. We had block scheduling. So I went to lunch and then we came back. And he had already sent the Scantrons through the little machine. I don't know if you remember those. And if if you're not doing too good, it makes a lot of noises when it goes through the Scantron machine. And so he said, I can either call your grade aloud or... You can come up front, I'll give it to you privately. And when he called my name, I said, just go ahead and say it out for everybody to hear. And he paused for a moment and he said, are you sure? Because it's below freezing. And I thought for a second, what does that mean? And then everybody in the class started to giggle and then I realized freezing is 32 degrees below freezing. Wait, what? And I went up front and he showed me my grade, and I had made a 27. So I, I mean, it threw me off so much. I thought, how in the world could I have so much confidence and could I work so hard for something to fail that miserably. Uh, My friend's dad picked us up from school, and he could see how how rattled I was, how upset I was, so he stopped by a gas station, and he bought me a Coke, and I just said, thanks, but that's not going to help. You know, my life is pretty much over. I I went home. Uh, My great-grandmother was staying with us, my brothers, after school each day, and I was in my room crying, and I was just thinking, I'm a failure. That's all I am. And my great grandmother came in there to comfort me and she put her arm around me and she said, I'm sorry. And she said, but crying's not going to help anything. And I remember thinking, even my, my great grandmother's dogging on me. Like, what, what is life all about? I, you know, I didn't really understand. But I, I vividly remember that day. Like, all I could think was, I am a failure and that's all I'm ever going to be. I was defining my, the future of my entire life based on one failure. Well, thankfully, the phone rang later that night. We had a home phone. For those of you who remember that, it has a cord on it. And my mom answered it and walked in the other room with the cord. And she came back in and she said that was Coach Moll. He just called. He was so bothered by the fact that you were that upset with your grade, he went back up to the school and realized that you filled out the Scantron wrong and you actually made a 97. So I don't know. He probably should have deducted some points because I filled out the Scantron wrong. But at least that kind of gave me some relief there. But honestly, I remember that day like, okay, I'm a failure, and that's all I'm going to be. But failure doesn't define who you are. Sometimes life will get you down. We all go through those times where no matter what we're doing, we seem like it's not working. And when it comes to church, when it comes to missions, there's going to be times where we're going to have some setbacks, sometimes some major setbacks, and things may not go the way that we plan them. And during this section here in Mark, Jesus is training his disciples, but they don't just see calming the storm, having control over nature, raising people from the dead, they see Jesus rejected. They see what seems like earthly failure. In chapter 3, you see there um, B on the PowerPoint. Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders and his family. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, uh, his family comes. This is right after Jesus calls his disciples. His family shows up and they want to take him home because they said he's out of his mind. And before Jesus addresses his family, the religious leaders say he is possessed by a demon, by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. That's how he can cast out demons. And so Jesus addresses the religious leaders and then he addresses his family outside. Uh, this is known as a Markin sandwich because he starts with one story, goes to another, and then comes back to that story. But I think part of the training for these disciples, what was important for Jesus and it's important for Mark to make sure that we know this, that there are times of earthly failure, times of rejection. And here is one of those times. As Jesus' own people, His own family, and His religious leaders, His own tribe that He's a part of, they reject Him. And they say some pretty harsh things about Him. And then right before, in chapter 6, right before He sends them, He's rejected again. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's rejected again. I'm going to look in detail at uh, Mark chapter six verses one and following. So if you have your Bibles, I'm, I'm going to stop paraphrasing and read for just a moment. In Mark chapter six, starting in verse one, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. So he's going to Nazareth. That's where we know that's where he's from. He's accompanied by his disciples. So again, they're following him along, being with him, learning from him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? So they're soaking it all in, and they're thinking, wait a minute. We know this guy. He grew up here. How is he able to do these things? And they don't say, how did you become a rabbi? Instead, in verse 3, they said, isn't this the carpenter? That's the question they have. Isn't this the carpenter? The Greek word for carpenter is this word tekton. And it literally could translate handyman or craftsman. So he wasn't a skilled carpenter. He was a handyman. I mean, he could come to your house and help you with your gate for your sheep or work on your house or do this or that. Like he he could do a variety of things with his hands. He's known as a tekton, as a carpenter, because that's what his dad would have been. His dad, Joseph, his earthly dad. We don't really hear much about Joseph in the gospel, so some assume maybe Joseph had passed away at this point. But in other places, other gospel writers refer to him as the son of the carpenter, by the family trade, not by rabbi, not by teacher, but by carpenter. My dad was a barber growing up, and there was an older gentleman that I knew for a few years, and I guess he was at a place in life where he decided it wasn't worth his time to learn any new names, So he just called me the barber or the barber's son. And that's what I was known as. And as I was reading this, I kind of thought that, like, they're just referring to Jesus as the carpenter or the carpenter's son. Who is this guy that thinks he can come in the synagogue and teach? What is he doing? That's the carpenter, right? And then they said, Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So notice they say, Isn't this Mary's son? In that culture, in that context, you always refer to someone in your genealogy as the son of your father. And they know Joseph. He might have have passed away several years before this, but you would still refer to him as the son of Joseph. But here they say, isn't this Mary's son? So that would have been an insult. I don't know if you pick up on that, but they're trying to intentionally insult him by not calling him teacher, calling him tecton, calling him carpenter, and by calling him Mary's son. They said, we know his brothers, we know his sisters, and they took offense at him there in verse, the end of verse 3. This is not the first time, it's not the last time that Jesus is going to offend someone. The message of Christ is sometimes intentionally offensive. There's times when my life and my actions are offended by what Jesus teaches. That's how we grow. So they're offended by him, and Jesus says in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. So faith has a lot to do with healing in Mark's gospel, and Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. His ministry is limited in his hometown because of the way that they are responding to him. But this is, again, a part of this training process for his disciples. He's getting ready to send them out on their first journey, but right after he calls them and right before he sends them, they witness, they are right there with him as he is rejected by his hometown, by the religious leaders, and by his own family. So it's like Mark is trying to show us that's going to be a part of the journey, but that doesn't define who you are. Jesus was not defined by their response to him. And the disciples are not going to be defined. Their identity is not found in whether or not they're really successful or not successful. Their identity is rooted in Christ. And that's what Jesus is showing them here, is that your identity is in me no matter how people respond to you. So he gets ready to send them. That's that's the little section there. He's trained them, and now it's time to send them. Look at verse chapter 6, starting in verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. So he calls them two by two. He's not going to send them out alone, but he's ready to send them. What they're going to do, they're going to go out, they're going to preach, they're going to have authority over these demons. This is an extension of Jesus' ministry. They're going to reflect what they've seen Jesus doing. Power over Satan, confrontation evil spirits and preaching that's what they're planning out planning on doing he's ready to send them you know back to that conference that i mentioned at the beginning of 1910 Edinburgh, scotland Uh, this conference brought with it a lot of success missionaries were sent all over the world and like i said about two-thirds of all the christians were in the west in that time and now over a 100 years later Places like Africa and India and China and South, South America and all these other countries and continents, the gospel ha- has reached them. There's churches, there's Christians everywhere. Now, there's still work to be done. It's not finished. But because of this sending, they went out and they put it to practice. And there was some success, but there's also some failure. Because now, over 100 years later, in our own country, Christianity is rapidly declining. So that number has kind of flipped around, and now two-thirds of all the Christians in the world live outside of the West. So there's still work to be done here. Jesus sends his disciples locally first. And I think there's, Jesus still sends us locally as well. Look at verse 8 and following. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. So kind of like the wilderness group in the Exodus story, they're to rely on God. Go, allow God's people, the hospitality of God's people, to take care of you on this journey, wherever you're sent to. In verse 11, Jesus is going to give them how they respond to rejection. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, Leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Normally, as a Jew, if you went and traveled to a Gentile territory and then you came back to Israel, to a Jewish territory, you would shake the dust off your feet symbolically. that You're returning home. Now what Jesus is telling his disciples to do is while you're in Israel, if they reject you and reject your message, wipe the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet. This is how you respond to rejection. He's showing them it's going to happen. It's not a time for self-pity. It's not a time to quit or to pout. You just move forward. You go to the next town. You're not always going to have success, and it's going to look like earthly failure, but in the kingdom of God, you're planting seeds, and it's not always failure. verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, that's what Jesus is preaching. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. I mentioned that last week. The Greek word is this word metanoia. And we know repent means turn around, go the opposite direction. And a lot of times, biblically speaking, the word repent is kind of a word of of doom. Like, beware, you better repent. But the way it's used is it's an invitation. You get to go in a new direction. God is doing something new, and you get to go in that direction. So come follow Jesus with us. Verse 13, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. Confrontation with evil, confrontation with Satan. I'll talk more about that as time goes on. But that's their ministry. So they go out. Now, if Jesus sends them, they need to come back and give a report. We do that in our mission work. We come back and we tell people how the mission went. Uh, And I believe that someday we'll give a report to Christ when we're finished on our earthly lives. Verse 30 of chapter 6, they come back and they give a report. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So there's the report. But in verse 13 is when they're sent out. And they don't come back and report until verse 30. So what happens in between? Well, even if you just look at your subtitle, you see that John the Baptist you know, take a, takes a stand against Herod. He's thrown in prison. And this whole story. And then eventually John the Baptist is beheaded and he loses his life. So another potential rejection story, or at least it looks like earthly failure. So I think Mark is trying to show us something. He's trying to hammer home the point that there's going to be difficulties and setbacks and rejection and times of hardship, but that doesn't mean you give up on the mission. Those are opportunities, actually, to grow. And so he tells them to press forward, to move forward and he sends them and again we believe that god is a sending god and i can see that here in pine tree that you believe in missions i believe and i've seen it already that this is kind of like a both and church you believe in both foreign cross-cultural missions and domestic missions and we believe in cross-cultural missions that's a part of reaching the nations that jesus has called us to jessica and i i mentioned briefly a time in africa We spent almost half a year in Africa because we believed that we were called to do foreign missions, cross-cultural missions. And we went to language school. We lived among the people, tried to learn their language and their culture, and we wanted to reach them for Christ. But things got messed up with our visa. We wound up coming home much sooner than we were planning on. But during that whole process, I felt like God was opening my eyes to see that I don't, I don't just play church at home and then go do missions somewhere else. That God allowed me to see that even in my, my own people, my own home, my own country, that that's a growing mission field in and of itself. And that God has not only called us to go somewhere else, but he's called us here also. That there's work to be done here in our own community, which I've already seen that a lot of you are excited about and already participating in. And we're excited to join you in reaching Longview, the God we believe has sent us here also. Uh, there's a man named Brian McLaren. He's a Christian author and speaker. Uh, I, I don't agree with everything that he teaches or everything he's written about, but uh, several years ago I heard him speak. And he, he had done some sort of, I, don't, I think it was an unofficial survey or some sort of poll, where he just asked random Americans, who is the most Christ-like person that you know? Which I think would be an interesting discussion. That may be something you might talk about when you go to lunch today. Who is the most Christ-like person that you know? Or who are the most Christ-like people that you know? And he said the number one person that a majority of the people said as the most Christ-like person that they knew was Gandhi. Which if you know Gandhi, you can admire him and things that he did. But one of the things that McLaren pointed out is the problem with that is Gandhi's a Hindu he's not a christian so if the most christ-like person that most people could think of is not even a christian then there's probably a problem somewhere that what we need most is to raise up disciples christ-like people here amongst our own people so he said as a result of that and i like the way he said this he said i'm declaring a new mission field a new place that god is sending us it's called reaching christians for christ starting with myself And I've kind of adapted that myself. That if I want to reach the world for Christ and join you in reaching the world with Christ, it begins here. It begins with myself and making sure that in my own life I'm reflecting Christ and that we are helping each other reflect Christ. And when we do that, we will send the light. People will know who we are and what we stand for. That God has sent us here and he sent us to the nations. Jesus did that with his disciples, and he's still doing that today. He did that through the incarnation. God sent his son, we know that, to come to this earth to raise up disciples and to die for us on the cross because he's ascending God. And through this message that we're called to preach, it's a message of salvation. To repent, to go in a new direction, to go in the direction of God, to have your sins forgiven. Uh, This morning, we're going to offer an invitation, and there's multiple things to the invitation. We're going to have shepherds scattered around the building in the back, and one up front, and I'll be up front. And if you need to respond to the invitation, you can come up front. You can grab a shepherd. If you need prayers, you can do that and do it privately. But if today's a day where you're ready to become a disciple, we want you to know that invitation is for you as well. Uh, We're going to stand and sing our song.